My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, What is your opinion? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. He said in reply, I will not. But afterwards, changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They answered the first. Jesus said to them, amen, I say to you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes did. Yet even when you saw that, you did not later change your minds and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. About 12 years ago, while serving as a chaplain in Illinois for a few weeks for a group of a couple hundred recent college graduates, I had what I'll call a delayed reaction of being insulted. I was introduced, this is Father Jim Churn, he's the chaplain and director of the Newman Catholic Center at Montclair State University, and that's in New Jersey. And the kids all smiled, and that was all it was. And that wasn't the problem. A few days later, they introduced this priest from Nebraska, and then someone yells out, Go Big Red! And this whole bunch of people start chanting all this stuff about Nebraska. Next day, the leaders welcomed another guest from Virginia, and people start hooting and hollering about that fact. So now my Jersey pride is taking a hit. I started to ask, well, why weren't there cheers and excitement over the fact I was from New Jersey? And it didn't take long for the jokes to start flying. Oh yeah, Father, we knew you were from Jersey the minute you, we met you, your accent gave you away. What accent? Anyway. You must be a terrible driver. Everyone from New Jersey is a terrible driver. Well, no, the rest of you people in the rest of the country don't know how to drive. Have you met Bruce Springsteen? No. You don't know how to pump your own gas, do you? Being born and raised and lived my whole life in New Jersey, apart from four years in college where I crossed the border into Pennsylvania, I was surprised how much Jersey pride I had in my reactions to all these stereotypes about this place we call home. Some not only didn't I take offense over, but almost helped give credence to, like when I excitedly explained with pride how The Sopranos was filmed practically in our own neighborhood in our towns. Some I might get defensive, like when I snap, I'm not an idiot, I do know how to pump my gas, I'm not allowed to because it's legal and I don't know why. Some might be true that I hate to admit, like, maybe we can be kind of frank and that can come across as rude, like when I snap about the whole gas thing. Stereotypes can be interesting. 
Sometimes we appeal to them, like when I'm loud and talking with my hands and get emotional and say, I can't help it, I'm Italian. There can be truth in these oftentimes oversimplified generalizations. But if we're not careful, it can be really dangerous and problematic. Like when they give life to one being dismissive to a person or to an entire group of people, judging based on those externals and determining their, their worth or their value. And we see that in hateful extremes like racism. We can hear it in the divisive rhetoric of political differences that are crippling any meaningful discourse in our country as one side calls the other side something. These kinds of attitudes can affect a person's spiritual life and perspectives too, where maybe we write someone off as being damned because they're not Catholic or believe that we're all good because we are. Today's scriptures are all about confronting some of these thoughts and attitudes. In that first reading, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking God's words to the people of God. Maybe because so much of their call and their identity came from being a part of this larger group, because God had entered into a covenant with a people whom he had called to be his own, they had started to develop a pretty messed up mentality where personal responsibility wasn't considered, but rather everything was rising and falling based on what the overall group had done. So in this particular instance, they had come to believe that now because their parents, their parents' parents, and multiple generations before had sinned, they were being punished for it. Now, in part, there was some truth to that. Things were not good at all for the people of God. The temple, which for the Jews was the holiest places on earth, first experienced the glory of the Lord departing, where God's very presence left the building. Eventually, the the temple is destroyed and the city of Jerusalem is conquered, and then the Jews are exiled. So the people that Ezekiel is prophesying to would be blaming their families and their relatives and all those people saying, it's not our fault. It's their sins that have caused all this. So when Ezekiel comes on the scene and tells them, stop blaming others, take personal responsibility for your situation, and in short, repent of your sin and return to God, they start to complain. That's what we heard at those opening words of the scripture. They say, you say the Lord's way is not fair. It's true, the temple was gone. They were exiled. Those realities resulted from repeated sinfulness on the part of God's people for some time. Even after other prophets had warned them, turn away from sin, return to God. Still, now that all these awful things had happened, it's like the people had decided, we might as well just accept our misery and embrace the awfulness of the situation. Saying about themselves, there's nothing we can do, we're cursed. We're doomed because of who we are, what our parents did. So we might as well just accept our lot in life. And with that acceptance, they were using it as an excuse not to stop sinning. Yes, the temple was gone, and the proper worship God had called them to was no longer possible. The sins of previous generations did have consequences. And some people who had nothing to do with that might have felt the effects of those bad choices. That's what sin does. 
But the prophet was saying, God has not abandoned you. Hope is not lost. You don't have to keep living like this. Too many of them were acting childish and immature. We don't have our temple. We don't have Jerusalem. What's the point? We can't do anything anymore. Living in this like tit-for-tat existence, not realizing, but realizing that their brokenness and their shame were getting worse and worse the further they remained obstinate and stubborn. The prophets call them, break the cycle. He's saying, you don't have to remain lost. You don't have to remain in exile. There are things you can do. You're from a sinful family. You're from a sinful nation. Well, how about you stop sinning? How about you turn back to the Lord? That's what the psalm was all about today. When we're saying, remember your mercies, O Lord. It's not like God had amnesia and forgotten. It was a song of a people who had been estranged from God and who had recognized their sins. But now, after hearing the voice of the Lord, they were experiencing conversion of heart and they weren't resisting out of pride any longer. And they weren't afraid of God. They were remembering his great mercy. They were trusting in him who would meet them in their humility. Centuries later, this is something, something similar that Jesus dealt with in this parable. There was so much stereotyping where the chief priests and the Pharisees had the sense that they were in the right group, they had the right pedigree and the right membership. And at the same time, the tax collectors and prostitutes were clearly not. And those attitudes had gotten to the point that the Pharisees believed they could do no wrong, and the tax collectors and prostitutes could do no right. Now, to be clear, lest we start doing the same thing they did, being a Pharisee wasn't a bad thing. Many virtuous Pharisees integrated their, their study of Scripture with how they lived their daily lives. And being a tax collector and a prostitute were very troubling and, and bad things. A tax collector was a, a Jewish man who had collaborated with the enemy Roman forces who had occupied their homeland and not only would collect unjust taxes from their fellow Jews, but could even charge extra for themselves. So there was a reason that tax collectors were excommunicated and seen as traitors. And being a prostitute where, where sex was being treated simply as a pleasure and a commodity that could be sold was equally sinful. But what Jesus was highlighting is that too often, people would allow themselves just to be stuck in those stereotypes. That Pharisee thinking that simply being a Pharisee meant he was good to go, and the tax collector and prostitute, sorry, you're doomed. And whenever we accept that narrative, the devil's having a field day. To the one group, presuming God's favor, and to the other, where they just give in to hopelessness. That's not from God. Those are lies straight out of the bowels of hell. Our stories are not determined by whatever classification we find ourselves in. And to emphasize that point, Jesus noted how some tax collectors and prostitutes heard the prophetic words spoken by St. John the Baptist. They made a sincere repentance, meaning they left that life behind and they turned towards God. 
Some Pharisees still rejected that despite that conversion of heart. Missing that at the heart of Scripture, how often God emphasized what he desires is a humble, contrite heart. Demonstrating that they were no longer studying and integrating the words of God, but had started to act like God themselves. The way to break the the groupthink mentality and the acceptance of stereotyping occurs when one person starts to break out of those preconceived patterns. I found that in a stupid way. Very personally, on one of my trips out to Illinois, I had stopped at a McDonald's just for a quick bite to eat. And while online, this lady in front of me turned around and said, hi, how are you doing today? And I immediately turned around thinking, who's she talking to? And sheepishly, I turned back and went, fine. My mind already thinking, what does this woman want? Why is she talking to me? I've never met her before. It wasn't until I was walking back to my car that it hit me, idiot, she was simply being nice. It's something that people outside of the New York, New Jersey tri-state area do. And that stayed with me. How often do I give in to some stupid stereotypes of where, where I'm from myself? And I'm also happy to learn from having kids from around the country who ended up at Montclair share how some of their deepest fears and the craziest of warnings that they heard receiving coming from, from the, where they were coming from, that they were coming to New Jersey, couldn't have been further from the truth when they actually got here, and how much they loved the Garden State. Those things pale, though, in comparison to what God's trying to tell us about our eternal identities. He's clarifying that being baptized, confirmed, and having received our first communion isn't guaranteeing our reservations in heaven. God's not impressed because we come from the most devoutest of families any more than he's not put off by our not having been raised in any faith. He's our loving father, and he's made each and every one of us and knows us better than we know ourselves. One of my favorite scriptures it's from the Old Testament where the prophet Samuel is sent by God to go find the next king of Israel that he had picked from the sons of a man named Jesse. And he's introduced to eight different men. And he sees all the ones that the father thinks it must be, the oldest, the one he considers the smartest or the bravest or the most creative. And as Samuel looks at all of them, God's made it clear, none of these guys, nope, And Samuel's perplexed. He says, I know I'm in the right place. You're the right guy. But it's none of these guys. Is this all your sons? And Jesse's like, oh, well, there's the youngest. He's out in the field shepherding my sheep. He's David. It's not him. And Jesse had already determined it could be no way David. Jesse, his own father, thought he knew David. Yet that was, in fact, the one whom God had chosen. And while the others might have been shocked or surprised or frustrated because of their judgments of God, their evaluations of each other, their expectations of what was called for to be a king, God had already expressed he wasn't interested in any of those things, telling Samuel he himself would pick the future king. With the conditions spelled out in the verse that's my favorite from Scripture, not as man sees does God see. Because he sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. Thank God he sees past the surface. 
past any silly stereotypes. Thank God he sees past the outward appearance, past the gabadosta, hard heads, and looks into the heart, that he sees the heart. He knows us and he loves us. And he sees the complexity of who we are and the totality of who we are. That's what Ezekiel was telling his fellow Jews in the first reading. That's what Jesus is saying in the gospel. God has never given up on us. None of the externals that people so often get hung up on, not even the worst of our sins and failures from the past, have to determine our present or our future. If we but hear his voice and remember his great mercy and return to him.